Let us open our Bibles to the fourth chapter of Romans and consider it for a while this morning and make as much progress through it as we can, trusting that the five preparatory sermons preached for this chapter will enable us to move ahead. Though, allow me a few minutes to remind us of the perspective that we have to have when we come into a chapter like this. The chapter is dedicated to the subject of Abraham, the father of the Jews, as part of Paul's inspired argument to correct the heresies of the Jewish legalists that you may have read about last evening in Acts 15, one of many places that you could read, where there had to be an entire church council in Acts 15 in order to deal with the heresy coming out of Jerusalem by Pharisees who professed to be converted, teaching that circumcision and keeping the law of Moses was necessary for eternal life. Paul had to deal with that heresy often, and Romans 4 is part of his argument against it. And the argument is beautiful to behold. And if you love the Word of God, and you love to see inspired reasoning and inspired writing, then you can get even that benefit from this fourth chapter. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? The whole chapter is about Abraham and its proof. The proof is in the pudding by looking at Abraham's life and finding out that Abraham was declared righteous long before he was circumcised. That is Genesis 15, 6, verses Genesis 17, 24, and 430 years or so before the law of Moses, all of which will come to bear in this chapter. We approach a chapter like this with presuppositions. Every person approaches the Bible with presuppositions. Some presuppositions are based on ignorance because they've never studied the Bible. Their presuppositions are determined by men. Church councils, denominational traditions, the church fathers, the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, or other influences. We approach the Bible with presuppositions established by studying the Bible. Every passage is to be studied with presuppositions. We don't go into any verse and come out with a private interpretation, because to do so, a private interpretation means something new. Because to do so means that we're overthrowing the first rule of Bible study. The presuppositions by which we enter Romans 4 are what we call the seven proofs of unconditional salvation and the five phases of of salvation. Both studies are essential to getting our arms around all that primarily the New Testament has to say about salvation so that we understand that it is a free gift by the grace of God, unconditionally given sovereignly to sinners, and then to understand the different phases of salvation that are described in the New Testament, most of which, four of them, phases we are passive in and a phase that we are very active in, the practical phase. With that foundation, we open Romans 4. But before we go to Romans 4, let me remind you of several examples. The great example here is Abraham. We have taken a position on the authority of Scripture and on the language chosen and on the presuppositions of all that is stated about faith and justification that in Genesis 15.6, where it says Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness, that nothing changed in the book of life. Nothing changed in heaven. Nothing changed in the nature of Abraham. What changed is that God made a formal declaration that Abraham was righteous by the faith that he showed as an evidence. What we see is God's approval there. Abraham's assurance and our learning. The reason Genesis 15, 6 was written in the wisdom of God is given to us in the 22nd and 23rd verses of this chapter. 
that it was written for us to recognize that Abraham was declared righteous without circumcision and without the law, and for us to realize we can be declared and counted and imputed and reckoned righteous in the very same way by believing a different set of promises, that God has given us eternal life through Jesus Christ as Lord. So we've taken a position on Genesis 15.6, which is quoted here in Romans 4.3, different from all Calvinists and Arminians. We've taken the position that faith is not the condition for justification of the Arminians, nor is faith the instrument of justification of the Calvinists. We have taken the position that faith, and along with works flowing from faith, are the evidence of justification. Because God looked at Abraham and officially and formally and in writing said in one little verse that the faith that Abraham had, and Romans 4 is going to describe that faith in its details, was evidence that he was a righteous man. So we take that position based on our knowledge of the New Testament and based on the language that was used. God saw, heard, knew the faith of Abraham and said that he counted that faith toward Abraham as righteousness. He counted the faith as an evidence of righteousness. He considered or esteemed or regarded Abraham to be a righteous man on the grounds of his faith. I do not know how to tell you how grateful you should be. If you start to read an Arminian or a Calvinist on this subject, the confusion and the roadblock they eventually get to is very discouraging because they eventually both end up at the same place. That we are justified by our faith. That God declares us righteous as a result of our faith. We deny We deny that, and we deny the works that follow as being any condition or instrument or means of justification. We do believe that there are means involved in our eternal life. And they are given to us in Hebrews 9, 14 and 15, where it says, by means of death. It was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that was the means of our salvation. Having looked at the words, and having remembered the second rule, or the third rule of Bible study, The order after the first one doesn't matter because the Bible doesn't put them in order, except the first one. Comparing Scripture with Scripture, 1 Corinthians 2.13, Paul said that we teach not using the words, words of man's wisdom, but those which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So we go into the Bible and we take confidence, our King James Bibles, oh, Let me chase that one for a moment. We started out this morning with Galatians 3.16. In Galatians 3.16, in the King James Bible, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. He saith, meaning God said in the Old Testament, Seed as of one, and not seeds as of many, which seed is Christ. That verse is telling us many things, which we're not going to belabor right now, but one thing it's telling us is the Old Testament of God's Word had better use the word seed in the promises given to Abraham from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 24. But when you go back to Genesis in the New King James Bible, or you go back to Genesis in the New, New is always better, right? You go back in the New American Standard Version or the New International Version, the promises made to Abraham were made to Abraham and his descendants. Thomas Nelson publishers are thieves and liars. They get a copyright on a book to use the name King James Bible. But they corrupt that Bible and they get a copyright on it to guarantee their income from plagiarizing and stealing the King James Bible because it's public domain material. The New King James Bible in Genesis 12 
7 to Genesis 24, 7, and every promise in between that was addressed to Abraham and his seed has been corrupted to Abraham and his descendants. Plural. So notice we can hardly get started. Because I have to remind you of the blessing that we have of knowing Galatians 3.16 in a King James Bible and having Genesis 12-24 through in a King James Bible. Because they're consistent. See, God has given us these inconsistencies to say, little child, I have hid these things from the wise and prudent. It was THDs and PhDs and LLDs that signed off on the new King James Version. But I've shown you, they can't even make their Old and New Testaments consistent. Children, I've given you wisdom that I've hid from them. They signed off on a joke, a fraud, a counterfeit. Enjoy, my little children. Don't you love Galatians 3.16 and the promises to Abraham now, little children? And we say, thank you, Father. We confess that we are babes in your sight. We confess with Solomon we are but little children. We do not know how to go out or to come in. Show us your word. And we believe it. They can make fun of us all we want. They can make fun of the King James Bible as being an antiquated piece of thee and thou garbage. And we'll say, call it whatever you wish. It's the word of God to us. And we're betting our lives and our eternity on it. You can bet your lives in eternity on a Bible that can't figure out who killed Goliath, that can't even put the singular noun seed in the Old Testament when the New Testament says it better be there. Disgusting. Confusing. Discouraging. But not too much. Thank you, Lord. What was all that for? Our dependence on every word of God. When the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.13 that the apostles taught the things of God, the things revealed and given to us by God, in words which the Holy Ghost teacheth. We take special interest and care in every word of God, so that when we find Genesis 15.6 saying, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness, and we are wanting to determine, is the faith the condition of the righteousness, or is the faith the evidence of the righteousness, We want to look at other places in the Bible that use the same language. Because God said, comparing Holy Ghost words with Holy Ghost words in 1 Corinthians 2.13. So we come to Psalm 106. And we've been there before. And you know where I'm going. And I hope you know where I'm going. And if you don't know where I'm going, and if you don't know who I'm about to talk about, you need to read your Bible more. Psalm 106. Because if you ever deal with Abraham, where the Bible says... God counted it to him for righteousness. You want to remember this man. His name is Phinehas. There's a chapter of the Bible written primarily about him. It's Numbers 25. But when we come over to Psalm 106, and the psalmist is recounting the history of Israel, he comes to that event where the Moabites, along with the Midianites, corrupted the Israelites to join them in their sacrifices of the dead. It was called joining themselves to Baal Peor. And they did it by sending their women in to seduce the men of Israel. They joined themselves also unto Baal Peor. This is Psalm 106, verse 28. And ate the sacrifices of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions. They invented a casual, contemporary form of worship, and God judged it. And the plague broke in upon them. Then stood up Phinehas and executed judgment. He took his javelin and he took it and thrust it through a fornicating couple. An Israelite man with a Midianitish woman that were doing it in the sight of all Israel. While the rest of them prayed and sobbed, Phinehas went and showed his zeal for the Lord by thrusting his javelin through both of them. That's what verse 30 means when it says, Then stood up Phinehas. He didn't sit on his backside and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. God stopped killing men, and the count had already reached 24,000 because Phinehas stood up. So the plague was stayed. Verse 31, And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. There we have the Holy Spirit's words. And I want you to remember this passage. We compare spiritual things with spiritual. 
We don't compare spiritual things with natural. We don't compare the Word of God with John Calvin. We don't compare the Word of God with Jacobius Arminius. We don't compare the Word of God with John R. Rice. We don't compare the Word of God with Billy Graham, Joel Osteen, Rick Warren, or anyone else. We compare what the Holy Spirit gave with what the Holy Spirit gave. And when we do that, we can look at Psalm 106, verse 31, and realize, and for, verse 31, and realize that couldn't have been the means of his justification. That couldn't have been when God made him righteous. That couldn't have been when God applied the death of Christ to him. That is when he gave evidence that he was a righteous man, and God declared it as an example and an illustration of Phinehas's righteousness for all generations. And here's a generation, 3,500 years after the event, and do you know what we know about Phinehas? He was a righteous man. Why? Because God counted that deed toward him as righteousness. God counted that evidence for the righteousness of that man because of his zeal for the Lord. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. I love the Word of God. That is so exciting what we just read. If you take any other position on it, then justification in the legal sense before God is dependent on you finding a couple fornicating Israelites and Midianites. Getting a javelin and making shish kebab of them. If you take any other position, then you have Phinehas in a prayer meeting as a son of Levi and a son of Aaron, a condemned goat. But as soon as that condemned goat, with a heart bent on rebellion against the God of heaven, as soon as he grabbed that javelin and went over and thrust it through, he got a new heart and... God justified him by applying the righteousness of Jesus Christ to him. It's all ridiculous. How did we arrive at this truth? By comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We are nothing. We are not smart enough to figure out the truth of God ourselves. He's figured it out for us and he's written it to us in the Bible. And he's written it in such a way that if a person wants to hang themselves by turning faith into a sacrament, they can if they want to understand that faith is the evidence of regeneration, and that regeneration is the evidence of justification, if justification is the evidence of election, they're going to understand that from the Bible. But here we have another example. Look at Hebrews 11 and verse 4. By faith, Hebrews 11:4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained righteousness. God testifying of his gifts... And by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. Somebody jump up and say, that's not what my Bible says. says. Thank you, brother. (laughs) Hebrews 11.4 By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. Where did God testify of His gifts? Back there in Genesis chapter 4. How did God testify of His gifts? I have accepted Abel and his offering, but I have not accepted you nor your offering, Cain. Could these words be, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness? Absolutely. Because those are the two senses that we're dealing with. I want you to remember Hebrews 11.4. Did he become righteous? No. Did he witness that he was righteous? Yes. Who testified of the fact? God. What happened to Abraham in Genesis 15? God testified of the witness that Abraham was a righteous man. What happened in Psalm 106, which was a recounting of Numbers 25? God testified of the witness of Phinehas' zeal that was proof of his righteousness. This is our doctrine. And we thank you, Lord God of heaven, for showing it to us. We believe that justification is by the free grace of God purchased through the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ without caveat, without modification, without compromise. Grace plus nothing for us.
Faith, it's the evidence of eternal life. Should we believe? God commands you to believe. God has given every reason for you to believe. God has given you the Spirit to believe. Yes, you should believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby obtain the same witness that Abel, that Abraham, that Phinehas had, that they are, that you are indeed righteous. And give assurance to yourself by then adding to that faith the things described in 2 Peter chapter 1. You know, Rahab, we're told that she was justified by lying to the authorities of her city. James chapter 2. Down here in verse 7 it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. How did he become heir of the righteousness which is by faith? By building a boat? When I read Genesis chapter 6, I find that God had already seen Noah walking with him and found grace in his sight before Noah knew what rain was. How did he, what did he obtain in Hebrews 11.7? He obtained the same witness and the same testimony that is in verse 4. He obtained witness and evidence and proof that he was a righteous man. His standing in heaven didn't change because of a boat he built. The boat he built was evidence of his standing in heaven. What can we get out of Romans 4? We can get this. How can a man be just before God? That's a question asked in the book of Job. How can a man be just before God? Every one of us are dying right now while you sit in that pew and while I stand behind this pulpit. We are dying and we are hastening to the day when we shall stand before Almighty God who is holy and just in all His ways and will condemn every infraction against His law, whether that law be written or in our consciences or in nature. We need justification. How can a man be just before God? By the free gift of God's loving grace through Christ Jesus who purchased it for us, and which we just sang about in that song, The Love of God. When we read this chapter, be thinking about that. How can a man be just before God? As we read this chapter, notice that the churches of Jesus Christ, even in the few pages of the New Testament, had to spend so much of their effort opposing heresy by the most conservative sect of the Jews' religion. The fundamentalists of the Jewish faith were the Pharisees. The Apostle Paul teaches us they were the straightest, that straight without a GH, like straight jacket. They were the straightest, the most restrictive denomination of the Jews' religion. They were the great enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. They caused the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. They took the word of God and corrupted it. They perverted the doctrine of circumcision and took it out of its place and applied it improperly. And so we have to fight today against Calvinists and Arminians and those who aren't even knowledgeable enough to know those two camps because they take faith out of its place and they misapply faith and they misapply Bible verses. Are there Bible verses teaching that anyone who is not circumcised on the eighth day is to be cut off from the people of God? Are there verses that say that? Yes. But that was to be understood in a particular dispensation given to Abraham, codified by Moses, and ending with the New Testament. How do we learn all that? Through the Word of God, by trusting it and no man. I am so sick of Jewish legalism. This morning I get up early. I get up early, and I go to my computer, and one of the emails that I need to answer, somewhere in the world, another one, another Sabbatarian, another Sabbatarian wanting to know what day do you worship on? Because they can find 200 verses in the Old Testament that tell the Jews to keep the Sabbath day holy. The Sabbath was done away in the Lord Jesus Christ. All you have to do is read two or three verses of our precious New Testament and know that it doesn't apply to us. No one observed the Sabbath before Moses came down from Mount Sinai. No one had even heard of it. Israel was so confused they couldn't even figure out how to gather their manna because of this new Sabbath ruling, meaning they had to go get a double portion on Friday in order to be able to eat on Saturday. No one had ever heard of it. It was a special sign to the Jews of one day of rest a week to make up for all their hard bondage in Egypt. The Bible tells us that ah, only about ten times. 
I'm sick of it. Are you sick of it? Let's rejoice in Romans chapter 4. Why am I mentioning these things? What should you get out of Romans 4? You know that justification isn't by circumcision. You know that Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. What are you going to get out of Romans 4? I'm struggling myself to give you something out of Romans 4. But it's the Word of God and I trust it. And though half of Paul's writings in the New Testament are polemical writings against the heresy of Jewish legalism, I know that God chose that for a purpose, and I hope that you are gripped, that though we are in a county of 450 Baptist churches, there are precious few, maybe we could number them on a couple hands, that believe the things that we see plainly in the Scriptures. I didn't mean churches either. I meant individual saints. The devil knew how to quote Scripture. He took Jesus up on the temple and he said, And he quoted Psalm 91 from the King James Bible. Look at God's promise in the inspired scriptures. If you're the son of God, throw yourself off. Because God's promised that his angels will bear you up. But he misapplied that scripture. Because when we have other ways of getting down from temple rooftops, we don't presume upon Psalm 91. And Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Though Satan had quoted scripture and quoted it correctly and applied it to the one object of that Psalm 91 that has the greatest intent of the psalm. If nothing else, get a hold of some inspired beauty. Let's go. Romans 4. You say you're almost done. No, I'll just see how fast we can go. I believe that we've spent enough time in Romans 4 because I don't want to belabor the point much longer. Romans chapter 4, I am going to read a verse quickly give you its sense, and we're going to go to the next verse. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Having stated the doctrine of justification by free grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that is verse 24 of the third chapter, having stated it, the apostle, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, now moves forward to pick the greatest Jew of all, whose salvation experience is described in the Old Testament and see how it fits his doctrine for the sake of those Jewish legalists in the audience. As pertaining to the flesh is referring to Abraham in his physical existence. What did he accomplish in his circumcision, in his altar building, or anything like that? What did Abraham find? Did Abraham find justification in a different way than I just taught you in chapter 3? Verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Chapter 3 has declared that justification is not by works. Verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Paul has already stated it. Now he's saying, is that true of Abraham's life? Verse 2, for if Abraham were justified by works... He hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Abraham is no exception. He was not justified by works. If he were justified by works, he would have an occasion or a reason to glory before God. But there is no such thing allowed. That's what the words mean, but not before God. Because verse 27 of the third chapter says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, nay, but by the law of faith. It's the system of faith as the evidence of justification by God's free grace through Christ's redemptive purchase that is the evidence of justification. There is no glorying. All boasting is taken away. All you Jewish legalists that want to boast about your Jewish heritage, it's stripped away in the gospel of grace and the system of faith. Verse 3, for what saith the Scripture? Let's go back and look at the event in Abraham's life. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. Paul quotes it here. Paul quotes it in Galatians chapter 3. James quotes it in James chapter 2. This is the most quoted verse about faith and righteousness. And we've already learned over the last three Sundays, four including this one, what these words mean. And I'm going to move on. Please pray and remind me that I hope to finish this week a 12-page, single-spaced outline on one little point, the righteousness of Abraham. 
There's so much confusion about how Abraham was justified. And it brings to bear all our presuppositions and explains all the language and the terminology and shows you the dictionary definitions and makes the cross-references in the Word of God about what these words mean, some of which we just looked at by looking at the life of Phinehas. Verse 4, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Here's his next argument. My Jewish legalist friends, I have just declared to you in verse 24 of chapter 3 that justification and obtaining God's righteousness is by the free grace of God. But if a man works for it, then he's getting rewarded or paid a wage. He's not getting anything by grace. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. God forbid. You can't mix the two. Instead, you have a debt situation with God. If you are doing anything as a condition or as an instrument, or as a means to obtain righteousness, to obtain justification, then God has to give it to you out of debt, because you've performed and He owes you the reward. It's of debt. It's not of grace. Because grace and debt are mutually exclusive. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. And Romans 11.6 is our wonderful text on this place, where it says, if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. And if it be of works, then is it no more grace? I should have read it. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. What does all that mean? I'm going to read it to you. I hate changing. If we're going to stand firm on every word of God, I'm not going to turn that verse inside out. Romans 11.6 If by grace, then is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. Do you know what that verse is saying? Works and grace are mutually exclusive by their definitions. If you try to mix the two, you are corrupting at least one of them because they are opposites. And that is what verse 4 is teaching. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. I have taught you that it was grace. It is not of debt. Therefore, Abraham was not justified by works. Verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Do you want the evidence of justification in your life? Then fulfill this verse. Because this verse uses the same language for you, potentially, as it does for Abraham, historically. Verse 3, Abraham believed God that was counted to him for righteousness. In verse 5, his faith is counted for righteousness. But what kind of faith? Faith that believes God justifies the ungodly. Not that God justifies the believing. Not that God justifies the repenting. Not that God justifies the baptized. Not that God justifies the Jew. Not that God justifies the good works. Not the God that justifies those that take Holy Communion, get confirmation, and do penance. And get extreme unction. That's four of the Roman Catholic's seven sacraments. It's that believes God justifies the ungodly. What does the Bible say? When Jesus Christ died for us, when God set His love upon us and sent Jesus Christ to die for us, what condition were we in? Were we believing and repenting? But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. He's reconciled His enemies to Himself by the death of His Son. Well, we're going to get to Romans 5. Just hold on. Romans 5 is transitioning from away, away from Jewish legalists toward verses that we can love more than these because we aren't guilty of Jewish legalism. Verse 5, But to him that worketh not, the Arminian works. The Arminian says, but all we require is faith. Faith from a dead sinner is the greatest work ever required of a man. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Abraham had to believe that dead Sarah and dead Abraham could reproductively and biologically have their own child. He did. We need to believe that God justifies the ungodly unconditionally by free and sovereign grace through the purchase of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we believe that, when we cast ourselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, believing that God raised Him from the dead and that God sent Him to be the Savior for the ungodly, 
We, the ungodly, we, dead in trespasses and sins, that is evidence that you are righteous. You don't have to take a javelin and go into a tent and find a fornicating couple that comes after faith. You're to add to your faith, shish kebab. That's 2 Peter chapter 1. Godliness. Virtue. Phinehas was full of virtue and godliness. That's why he did it. That's verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Remember Paul's purpose. Paul's purpose is not to define the differences between what we believe and Calvinists and Arminians. Paul's purpose is to define the difference between gospel truth and Jewish legalists. And so the contrast is him that believeth. Abraham's the example, Genesis 15. It's the same thing for you. The man that believes that God justifies the ungodly, as I just taught it to you in chapter 3, that man's faith is the evidence of righteousness. That man's faith is counted for righteousness toward that man. If you make faith a condition, if you make faith plus baptism a condition, if you make faith a condition without baptism, you're just inconsistent in the Bible. But if you make faith a condition, or if you make faith and baptism a condition, then you contradict verse 5, and your faith is not counted for righteousness. That is not the faith that God is looking for from us. Because you are working. God owes you a debt. See, in the Arminian scheme, God did everything he could for the whole world. He loves them all equally and without distinction. Jesus Christ did everything he could for every single inhabitant that's ever been conceived in the human race. There was no difference. The Holy Spirit has done an equal measure for every single one. Therefore, the deciding difference between some going to hell and some going to heaven is that some perform some condition. And by performing a condition, they end up working and they end up taking away the grace of God and making it of debt. Because the difference becomes something someone did rather than something the Lord did. We believe it is finished in John 19.30. We just believe it. We believe Jonah where it says, Jonah 2.10, salvation is of the Lord. We don't modify it. We don't compromise it. Verse 6, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Remember, Paul is defeating Jewish legalists, so he quotes from their scriptures and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Oh, the sweet psalmist of Israel did deal in theology. He did deal in soteriology, or the doctrine of salvation. He did indeed. Psalm 32, we read it last Lord's Day. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose whose iniquities are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Remember? Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Even as David also describeth this unconditional gift from God upon men. Unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Notice, it doesn't say without works back there in Psalm 32. It doesn't say it. Because it's a positive statement that God just does it. There's nothing in there. So we don't put anything in there. And Paul draws from that, that you have in your own scriptures, you Jewish hearers, the blessedness of a man that God justifies without any works. And then he quotes Quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, in verses 7 and 8. Let's go to verse 9. Cometh this blessedness. Why is it called a blessedness? Because David in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 said, Blessed is the man! Isn't that what we just read there? Did did Paul quote it right? Yeah, he did. Verse 8. Blessed is the man. Verse 7. Blessed are they. Cometh this blessedness. This blessedness of unconditional justification by the free grace of God, where he does not impute sins to a man's account, that means he doesn't reckon them, count them, or account them, and instead he counts, accounts, reckons, and imputes righteousness to that man. That is blessedness. Does this blessedness come upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? Great question. Look at the question mark. It's verse 9 of Romans chapter 4. Just pretend you're sitting in an audience in Rome, a church of saints in the church of Rome. It's a different church of Rome than the one that's there now. Just a little, just a little different. 
And you're sitting there, you're a Jewish legalist, born a Jew, raised a Jew, trained a Jew, nationalistic as a Jew, culturally superior as a Jew, in your opinion. And there's these poor Gentiles sitting there beside you, and here's the apostle hammering you for three chapters that there's really no difference between Jews and Gentiles. We're all condemned. We're all going to stand before God and all be found wanting. Every mouth is going to be shut that the whole world may become guilty before God. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. So now the question. He's just used Abraham. And he's pointed out Abraham's illustration. Look at what the Bible says about your father Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. There was no works involved, just like I taught you in chapter 3. Verse 9. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? Those terms are used to distinguish Jews from Gentiles. Jews were the only ones forgetting the Ishmaelites and others that picked up the habit from Abraham. Jews circumcised, Gentiles didn't circumcise. So Paul's reference here is, Cometh this blessedness then upon the Jews who circumcise only? Or does this blessedness also come upon the Gentiles who are uncircumcised as well? Great question. Great question. Now, if you've been listening to chapter 3 and 4, you already knew the answer. But Paul's going to lead you on so that you come to the proper conclusion yourself. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. My Jewish friends, as we, as we try to figure out whether this blessedness of justification comes only to Jews who circumcise, or whether it also comes to Gentiles that don't circumcise, we remember what I just gave you in this fourth chapter, that righteousness was declared to Abraham on the ground of his faith in 15.6. Verse 10, how was it then reckoned? There's the word reckoned. The Holy Spirit gave us four synonyms. Reckoned, imputed, counted, and accounted. If you read Romans 4, Galatians 3, James 2, Genesis 15, Psalm 106, you are going to find all four of them used interchangeably as synonyms. They mean, and I gave you this already, and I don't don't want to do this, but here we go again. They mean... To regard, to esteem, to consider a thing to be such and such. So what does it mean? God saw the faith of Abraham and regarded and esteemed and considered it to be the evidence that Abraham was such and such, a righteous man. How was it then reckoned? Which means counted or accounted. You say, why didn't he use the word count that he used in verse 3 when he quoted Genesis 15.6? So that you can tell whether you have a real Bible virgin or not. So that if a man wants to hang himself as a skeptic, there's rope in Romans 4. We're going to get more rope, but it's next Sunday. It's in verse 17. Because God chose to, and I love it. Yes, it makes me work a little harder as a speaker, and it makes you work a little harder as a hearer. All for the glory of God. If he wanted to write us a Dick and Jane book, he could have. He didn't. I praise His great and glorious name. He's exalted His word above all His name. Psalm 138, verse 2, and that's right where I want to put it. Four synonyms mean exactly the same thing in English or in the Bible, which is our English Bible. Verse 10, how was it then reckoned? When was faith counted to Abraham as the evidence of his righteousness? How was it then reckoned? The issue is when. How did this happen? How did it transpire? How do we know that it means that when is the issue? That timing is the issue? That a timeline becomes important? Because of the next word. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Did God declare Abraham a righteous man justified in his sight when he was circumcised or when he was uncircumcised? They knew the Old Testament. They knew the order of the books of Genesis. So Paul answers in verse 10, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. God declared Abraham a righteous man on the ground of his faith when he was uncircumcised 
because it occurred in Genesis 15 and circumcision didn't happen till 17. Now you're sitting there in church and you're a Jew and you've been puffed up. You've been telling your children, especially your boys, as you took them in for minor surgery on their eighth day of life, that, son, we are the chosen people of God. Heaven is our home. Now bite this bullet while I cut off some skin. Okay, now you're sitting there and here's the Apostle Paul tearing down your house of cards. I love it. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Abraham gave an example of faith as the evidence of righteousness and justification, not only to Jews that get circumcised, but to Gentiles that don't get circumcised, because God declared him righteous when he was uncircumcised, so that he could be the father of us all by his example. There's the 11th verse of Romans chapter 4. And circumcision, my Jewish legalist friends, was a sign and a seal of the righteousness of the faith that he had. It was not a condition to get a reward. It was not a work to obtain wages. It was a sign and a seal of the declaration in chapter 15. It doesn't even have the purpose you think it has. You think minor surgery, because you're so nationalistically and culturally arrogant, is going to get you to heaven. No. Circumcision, though it is practiced by the whole nation, this is Paul and I'm elaborating, I'm trying to give the sense of the words. Circumcision, though highly esteemed by the nation, is a sign, it's a picture of something, and it's a seal of this truth. That the evidence of justification is not Jewishness. That the evidence of justification is not the works of Moses' law. That the evidence of justification is faith. Without the works of the law and without circumcision. Because Abraham got it, declared of him, before he was circumcised. All that's in verse 11 and more. That he might be the father of all them that believe. Abraham is your father if you're a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ this day. Though they be not circumcised. And it doesn't matter whether some of us sitting in here are circumcised, and some are. And some sitting in here are not circumcised, and they are not. That doesn't matter. It's whoever was circumcised for religious reasons. Religious reasons. Forget the cosmetic reasons. Forget any hygienic reasons. It's just religious reasons. That's the issue when we come to the Bible and we start reading about circumcision, like this verse right here. That righteousness might be imputed unto them also. What does the word impute mean? It doesn't mean to infuse, and it doesn't mean to make righteous. It means to count, account, or reckon as righteous. Verse 12, And the father of circumcision, now verse 11 says he's the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised. So what kind of people are in verse 11? Gentiles. You and me, Gentiles. Now 12 is a little different. And he is the father, Abraham is the father of circumcision, to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. There is another issue within the nation of Israel. They're all circumcised, but only some of them are truly the children of Abraham because they walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had before he was circumcised. So verse 12 is Jewish. We know it's Jewish by the adverb also, down there in the middle of the verse. He's the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only. Not only are they Jews and physically circumcised, but who also, this is the second qualifier, walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Do you know what Paul just did? Here's salvation to a Jew. The Jewish nation is this big. 
Those that are saved and going to heaven, guess how big it is? What did Paul say? Well, verse 11, we've got these over here who are Gentiles that never got circumcised. They're saved by the evidence of their faith, just like Abraham, who's the father of all believers, because Abraham was declared righteous by his faith before he was circumcised. Then he comes back over here to the Jews in verse 12. And are you ready for this? They're thinking this big? He says this big. It's not their circumcision that gets them saved. It's whether they have the faith of their father Abraham, even though they may be circumcised. Do you see his change of the doctrine of salvation to a Jewish mentality? Oh, forgive my, my noises. Sherry has to sleep with them every Sunday night as I think about every word I said. What a curse. It's a melancholy curse. And all those of you who think that melancholy, being a melancholy is a blessing, give up. Right. How do I tell you how beautiful that is? That's why I say, pretend you're sitting there and the Apostle Paul is pulling, is pulling your house of cards apart. Boy, does he know how to do it too. Have you ever seen a baseball bat with a house of cards? This is it. Romans 4. Verse 13. He's going to leave circumcision. We've just covered circumcision. What more could you possibly want to know about the role of circumcision now? It is over. He has brought Gentiles in to justification and he's crushed the Jewish nation down to those who are identified with Abraham by faith. And as I read to you earlier this morning from Galatians 3.28... In Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Verse 13, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. Notice, we've transitioned. Verses 13 through 15 are no longer talking about that rite of circumcision, minor surgery given to males, described in Genesis 14, codified by Moses' law, He is now dealing with the law of Moses that came 430 years later. And Paul knows that number because he uses it in Galatians chapter 3. He said, how in the world can the law that was given 430 years later nullify the promise that was given to Abraham? Good point, Paul. It can't. He doesn't use the 430 here, but he expects you to understand it because you have a Jewish timeline in your mind. Thank you, brother. I love that timeline. Did you get it and look at it? You need it in your head. You say, well, it's not that important. It's important enough to Paul to describe the 430 years in Galatians 3. It's important enough to Paul to tell you that right now. I hope you looked at it. I, it's so simple. But the gospel is simple. It's all plain to him that understandeth. Right. Proverbs 8, 7 and 8. Verse 13, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It was faith as the evidence of righteousness that showed Abraham that God declared to Abraham he was going to be the the beneficiary of promises and a promise. It wasn't by the law. First of all, it wasn't by circumcision, verses 9 through 12, nor was it by Moses' law. Now what we have in this verse that we need to answer is for the promise that he should be the heir of the world. There is no promise in the book of Genesis chapters 11 through 25 that have these words just like this. So what is intended by the apostle when he says the promise that he should be the heir of the world, what does that mean? Heir. If we look at the word heir, it means to be the beneficiary of a covenant, a testament, so that you receive an inheritance. And if we go looking... Regarding the life of Abraham, did God promise him something that he would receive as an everlasting inheritance, as an everlasting possession? It was described as an inheritance repeatedly in Hebrews 11, and it's described as an inheritance in Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's sermon, and it's described as a possession in Genesis chapter 12 and in other places. It's the land. What does the land mean in the Bible? Heaven. Where, where do we know that the promise of the land to Abraham was chiefly and ultimately to be fulfilled in heaven? We know it from Hebrews 11. 
verses 8 through 16, where it is declared very plainly to us. Now, how big is heaven? What was going to be included with heaven? What did Abraham have given to him that he would be called the heir of the world? He is going to inherit the world. We believe, and I'm just trying to simplify this. If you want more detail, there is Romans chapter 4 coming. If we obtain heaven as an eternal inheritance, what goes along with heaven according to 2 Peter chapter 3? For we, according to his promise, wait for new heavens and a new earth. Does 1 Corinthians chapter 3 say, all things are yours? In Christ Jesus, all things are ours. So that though it is not stated with those words in Genesis 11 through 25, what is stated is land that Hebrews 11 tells us is heaven, and we know that heaven includes a new earth, and we know that everything is included because we're joint heirs with Christ, all by the justifying grace of God through the purchase of the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise that he should be heir of the world was that look east, look north, Look west, look south. All this I'm going to give you and your seed for an everlasting possession. What was it? It was heaven. What does heaven include? If, if it's, it's the next hermeneutics lesson on logic, rhetoric, and proper reasoning. You can argue from the lesser to the greater and it should just fall into place. If God's going to give Abraham heaven, is it anything that he's going to just include the earth along with it? All things are His. This is our eternal inheritance. The promise. God promised eternal life before the world began. Where will that eternal life be spent? In heaven. What will we own in heaven? Everything that God has. Everything God is. The new heavens and the new earth that are given to us by promise in 2 Peter chapter 3. I believe it's verse 13. Verse 13 here in Romans 4. For the promise that He should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The important issue in verse 13 is not really what is the what is being an heir of the world. The real issue is, did it come by the law of Moses or did it come by faith? That's that's what Paul's driving at. It's a side study for us to want to know, what does it mean that Abraham's the heir of the world? Because Abraham owns everything. He is the friend of God, and as a son of God, he's been given everything. Heaven a heavenly country, a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It's all his. Verse 14, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. If it's the law of Moses 430 years later that made the promise come true to any Israelites, then faith is made void. All of a sudden, Genesis 15.6 has no value. All of a sudden, The promise is made of none effect because the promise was given to Abraham and only recognized and received by faith. The promise was not given as if you'll do this, then you can have. It was promised unconditionally to Abraham. God swore by himself, not by Abraham's faith. And so verse 14 is declaring, if they which are of the law, if those following Mount Sinai are heirs of the promise of eternal life and justification through Christ and inheriting heaven and earth, then faith is made void. What Abraham did in Genesis 15.6 is made worthless. It's turned into nothing. And the promise made of none effect. Verse 15, because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. The law points out transgressions. When a law is established, due to our propensity to break laws, and by the nature of a law, it shows us to be transgressors. It shows us to be sinners. Because the law worketh wrath. If you are looking to Mount Sinai, you Jewish legalists, there is no more promise. That's a, that's a debt upon you performing certain conditions. There's no more value in faith because it's rendered null and void of Genesis 15.6. And furthermore, there is no hope for any of us because the law only brings the wrath of God, which he has been teaching since 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And he's declared that of the Jews as well as the Gentiles in chapters 2 and 3. Because the law worketh wrath. 
The law brings God's wrath upon men. Because if we are measured only by our compliance with God's law, we are condemned. We are guilty. The purpose of the law, according to chapter 3 and verse 19, is to shut every mouth and that all the world may become guilty before God. The law works wrath, you Jewish legalists. Don't run to Mount Sinai. There's no hiding place there, as we sing in one of our songs. Hail sovereign love that first began the scheme to rescue fallen man. It's not at Mount Sinai. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you dare run to Sinai because the law works wrath. The purpose of the law was to be a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. Galatians chapter 3. Romans chapter 7 will say, what is the purpose of the law? That sin might become exceeding sinful. Do you know why God gave 712 commandments to the nation of Israel? So that 713 times a day they could realize 713 different ways that they were condemned and guilty before God and they needed a lamb that was better than the little lambs that were brought to that tabernacle every morning and every evening. And so the Lamb of God came into the world and taketh away the sin of the world. That's why the law works wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. What does that mean? Where there is a law, there is transgression. And where there's transgression, there's God's wrath. And where there's God's wrath, there is no eternal inheritance of heaven in the presence of God. It is not by the law. Verse 16. This is what I've been trying to get toward, and I'm sorry that it's so late. Verse 16. Therefore, therefore, it is of faith. It's not circumcision. And it's not the law. Therefore, I conclude by looking at Abraham's life. It is of faith that it might be by grace. What does the of faith mean? Faith is the evidence of the righteousness of God's justifying mercy toward us through Christ Jesus. What is the means? It is God's grace. What is the vehicle? God's grace. What is the instrument? God's grace. What is the condition? God's grace that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, it is of faith. It is not of the law. You don't have to be connected to the law nor keep it. It is not of circumcision. It's of faith. If you believe, it is the evidence that God's grace has justified you. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. God has arranged salvation by His free grace through the redemptive purchase of Christ Jesus, 324, that the promise of eternal inheritance in heaven would get to all the seed, all the children of God that are also called the children of Abraham, who are the brothers of Abraham and the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing sure about the Arminian scheme. The seed in the Arminian scheme is the entire world. And there is nothing sure Nothing sure. Because God, the Father, couldn't make it sure. Jesus Christ couldn't make it sure. And the Holy Spirit couldn't make it sure. But God's grace of justifying the ungodly and only evidenced by faith gets it sure. It doesn't matter whether a man's not circumcised. It doesn't matter whether a man doesn't keep Moses' law. It doesn't matter whether a man's never heard of Moses' law. It doesn't matter whether a man has never heard of circumcision as a religious rite. God is going to get the promise to all the seed. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Praise God for the truth of Romans chapter 4. The Jewish legalists are taken apart piece by piece. And he brings it to a conclusion by pointing out that God's plan of salvation is so arranged that he can make it sure to all the seed. Jesus Christ said in John chapter 6, I will lose none of them. Jesus Christ said in John chapter 10, it is impossible for any man to be plucked out of my hand. How did they get into the hands of Jesus? John chapter 10, we ought to read the context. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. 
Well, who were the ones Jesus said he would not lose a single one of in John 6? All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. This is the doctrine of the Bible. This is, for by grace are ye saved through faith. What does faith do? It is the evidence of God's gracious work of salvation in your life. That is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's found in a context of you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. When you have faith, you know that you're alive. If you're alive, you know that God considers you righteous. If God considers you righteous, He chose you to it and predestinated you to it before the world began. Therefore, it is of faith. That's where our faith comes in. It's the evidence. It's not a condition. There's no debt. There's no working. It's not circumcision. It's not Moses' law. It is faith that it might be by grace to the end. Here's God's goal and the reason for the design, the promise, might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, Jews, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles, who is the father of us all. Amen and amen.